And, and here's what I've come to know about um, theology. Is that much of theology is not just learning about God, but unlearning what we think we know about God. And that most of us have been indoctrinated and ingrained with images of God that don't accurately portray His nature. And so the God that we've come to relate with, the God that we've come to serve, is not necessarily the true identity of God. So tonight I want to talk about the true identity of God. And the title for my sermon is it's pretty... I don't know. I couldn't come any way around it. It's God is not bipolar. Okay? God is not bipolar. And this is going to make sense because some people think he is. Uh, what we find is that we have this idea that the God of the New Testament acts with love and grace differently than the God of the Old Testament. And that idea comes from something called covenant theology and dispensationalism, which how many of you have had or do have a Schofield reference Bible? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Mr. Schofield was a brilliant Bible studier, but he was ingrained in a strain of theology called dispensationalism, which sees God acting differently in different periods of time. All right? And so what we take away from that is that, that God uh, uh, changed his operation, that he changed uh, how his nature was interpreted. But I want to pose to you tonight that the narrative of Scripture is not a different revelation of God in the New Testament, but a progressive revelation of God. That as we go from Genesis to the Gospels to Revelation, we don't see different views of God nature. We see a continued progressive enhanced view of God's nature. And we're going to learn three things about God tonight. The first thing that we're going to learn is that God does not change. God does not change. You don't have to turn to Hebrews 13.8. You probably know it. It says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? You know that verse. Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. It doesn't say God the Father. It says Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is not a new revelation of God. When Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, He was not a new personification of God. He was the eternal personification of God that has always existed in the heavenly. Jesus Christ, whose scripture said was the lame slam before the, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, was always revealing His nature. And His nature is selfless love. Selfless sacrifice. So when Jesus came down here, we weren't seeing a different God. We weren't seeing God operate in a new way. We were seeing God as He's always been God. And that is giving of Himself to redeem humanity. From the beginning of time, God has been a redemptive God. Somebody's got to help me tonight because I'm getting a little excited. You see, God was always in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This was the ultimate identity. This was the ultimate nature that God wanted to reveal. The lamb who was slain and the cross was not God's plan B. Somebody hear me if you will. God did not see man mess it up and say, well, what are we going to do now? Well, Jesus, let's have a talk. Do you think you can go down there and fix it? You see... 
The Mormons teach that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers and that they both posed their ideas to God of how they would save the world and God chose Jesus because he had a better idea. I don't know what Lucifer wanted to do. But this theology says, whoops, man messed it up. Look at Adam, man. I'm telling you what. Let me tell you guys, when God created Adam, God knew Adam would fall. And the plan of the fall was that eventually Adam and mankind would see the ultimate revelation of Christ and be drawn to God. God did not send Jesus to fix it. Jesus was not the solution. He was the point of the problem. He was the pinnacle of the problem. God allowed the problem so that you would know Jesus. And that's a hard thing for us to say. I'm going to be talking about this Sunday. We launch our series called When Children Ask Tough Questions. And I'm going to be talking about the problem of pain in this world. The problem of evil. Why does God allow it? And all I can say right now is that God allows it because without knowing the depth of the darkness, we would never understand the light. God always had it in His plan. Sin was revealed so that Christ could be revealed. As Paul said, I had not known sin except by the law, but where grace I'm sorry, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So it was through sin that we see the bounty of grace that God has. Let me tell you what, I got a new catchphrase for our church, it might catch on. A great church for great sinners to learn about a great God. And let me tell you, the only kind of sinners that need to be in the house of God are great sinners. Because there's no other type. If you think you're a mediocre sinner, you don't know God's grace. (laughs) Some people get angry at grace preaching. You don't think you need that much? You think you need less than someone? No, no, no. We're all great sinners. Fallen short. So number one, God does not change. Number two, God does not act on his anger the way we do. You see, God created man in His image and for thousands of years man has tried to create God in His image. Man has tried to believe that God looks like us. So here's where I want you to turn. Psalm chapter 7. When you get there, say word. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. This is the 7-11 of the Bible. We're going to stop here and fuel up and stay there and get a little... Donut and maybe a, a, a soda pop for a while. We're going to hang out here. Scripture says, Psalm 7, 11. Let's stand on Wednesday night. Let's do this. This is important because we're going to be hanging out here. God is a righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Oh, well, that's, that sounds horrible. Let me, let's try it again. God is a righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. All right, let's be seated in God's house. We're going to talk about this. How many of you got a King James tonight? Maybe less than half of the congregation. Look in your King James. It says, God is a righteous judge. 
who displays his anger every day. I want you to look there and see what is different about your text in the King James in Psalm 711. What is it about the text that appears differently? And if you have a new King James, you should see this too. What appears differently? Okay, yours says just, all right. All right, how's it written differently? Does anyone see that with the wicked is different? How is it written differently? It is italicized. The font is changed. Let me tell you something. Font has never been more important in your life than it's going to be right now. (laughs) If it's Time New Romans or Arian, font is important right now. And here's the good and the bad thing about what the translators did in the King James. They put this scripture in italics. They put with the wicked in italics because the original Hebrew does not contain the words with the wicked. So whenever you're reading your King James or New King James and you come across italics, it's meant it's not in the original language. It's added there by the translators. All right? And what the translators were trying to do, they they were good men, but listen, let me tell you what, the the translators were uh, in need of God's grace just like we were. They were trying to help us understand the text, but sometimes they can harm our understanding of the text. I know what you're saying. You're saying, good gracious, preachers just told me I've been reading my Bible different. There's different fonts. I've got to pay attention not only to the chapters and numbers, I've got to look at the fonts now, preacher. (laughs) Let me tell you, I'm not trying to, to discourage or confuse anyone. Here's what I'm trying to say. That's why there are preachers. That's why we have men, whether it be in Sunday school classes or ladies in Sunday school classes or preachers in the pulpit whose job it is, as the scripture says, to have the ministry of the word. So that the word of God can be studied and communicated. It's my job. But I know there's going to be a lot of questions and the word of God is faithful and sufficient. We're going to find the answer together. Here's what the King James says. God judges the righteous and is angry with the wicked every day. So even though the translators inserted with the wicked. Let's take that out for a moment and look at the original Hebrew. Let's take what they inserted out. God is the righteous judge and is angry every day. Okay? This is telling us something a little different. That God's not just angry at Randy. God's not just angry at Matt or at Mike. God's anger is more than a personal relationship anger. You following me? His anger is not just directed towards Scarlett or to Jesse. His anger is an overarching anger with the problem of the world's evils. And see, what happens is a lot of people like to quote Psalm 711 by saying, God doesn't just love everyone, He hates sinners. Because the scripture says, Psalm 711, He's angry with the wicked every day. Well, our first problem is we've got an inserted italicized word. But <laughs> when you look into different translations, who has, a diff- who has a NASB or um, ESV? Who's got something like that? What does yours say about um, um, the emotion that he has? 
What are you using? NASB. All right. This is why in college they made me use the NASB. Because it gives us an insight into the original language that sometimes translators don't pick up on. Now that's why I use multiple translations. That's why I use ESV, NIV, New Living Translation, King James. Let me tell you, it's the Word of God. It talks about Jesus. Amen? It's the Word of God. But let's talk about that word indignation because what I found is that original Hebrew word is indignation. Now... We don't use that word much today, partly because our society is much less educated than it was 100 years ago. (laughs) What used to be a second grade reading level is now a fifth grade reading level. Our society has less vocabulary than it did. What about this word indignation? This word indignation in the dictionary is defined by anger or annoyance provoked by what is perceived as unfair. Anger or annoyance provoked by what is unfair. So let's just not blanket the whole definition of indignation to anger. Let's put it like this. God is annoyed every day. (laughs) I sure would be. (laughs) You watch the news lately? You've been to Walmart lately? You've driven on the freeway lately? (laughs) If we're annoyed, don't you think God is a little perturbed? He's annoyed because people don't get it. People are killing one another and harming one another and hating one another. And here's what God says, you don't get it. So in one way, God's pretty annoyed. It also says that indignation is an emotion often composed of anger. Disgust, contempt, or resentment. So so the dictionary tells us that indignation has anger, but that's not all it has. Anger is a part of it, but indignation is more like an an unsettling. More like a, a discomfort with the situations of the world. God is uncomfortable with the way the world is. So so now his uncomfort is not directed at people, but the whole situation. You see where I'm going? He is uncomfortable that sin is prevalent. He is uncomfortable that people are dying without the knowledge of Him. He is uncomfortable that there is injustice in the world. And the problem is, every one of us falls into the category of wicked. So His elements of anger are not what we think it to be. And mean and legalistic preachers often make God look like a military drill sergeant than a husband. Waiting to punish you. (laughs) I was an element leader in the military responsible for 15 men. And during the inspections, every time... He found a failure on one of those men's clothing. I would have to do 10 push-ups for every failure. So I had to stay in the push-up position while he inspected 15 men. He said, there's a failure. 10. Right? For 30 minutes, I stayed in this position and did 300 push-ups. You think it sounds excruciating to you. Let me tell you. What kind of position was I in? I was under the punishment 
under the chastisement of a dictator who wanted to mold me and to break me. And we think God is that way. Hmm. Let's talk about them. See, here's the difference between our indignation and God's indignation. Our indignation is rooted in our own worry and fear. Give you an example. We see this situation in Ferguson. Most of us don't have anger about it because we don't know enough about this situation in Ferguson. I don't know if Michael Brown stole the cigars or if he did something. I don't know, but we can look at the situation and say, I'm uncomfortable with everything that's going on. That's indignation. I'm disgusted at everything, the riots, the looting, the protesting. I'm uncomfortable. But see, here's the difference between our indignation and God's. Ours is rooted in fear and worry. But God's indignation is rooted in His sovereignty. Ours is rooted because we're not in control. His is rooted because He is in control. And guess what? He knows He's going to fix the problem. He knows He he can fix it. So his uncomfort is not like ours. And what happens in fear and worry? We retaliate with anger. God does not do that. God doesn't say, oh, look at these little peons down here messing everything up. Pew, pew, pew. That's what some people think God does. The reason we see indignation so much in the Old Testament is because people don't yet understand the fullness of His nature. And how could they possibly know? Because He had not come in flesh. Even His own people did not see the fullness of His nature, so there was still indignation when people don't know Him. When people don't know God, there's indignation, there's uncomfort, there's an unsettling. Because they don't know who He really is. So there's a sense that until the cross occurred, God knew that people wouldn't know Him. And God knew people were getting His identity wrong. And as He sees the suffering of the world, which He had full knowledge of since the beginning, He knows that justice will not happen until His Son receives the wrath that's reserved for us. Once His Son receives the wrath reserved for us, then He'll say, now people know me. That I'm not a chastiser. I'm not a punisher. I am a holy father who loves children. And I love my children so much that I will crush my own son to know them. Just like Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, the gospel is not that God's waiting to punish you. It's that he already punished Christ. In your place. So that you would know his true nature. You would know who he really is. He's there chasing you. Pursuing you. All the way to Calvary. So ever since the foundation of the world, there has been, in a sense, a holy unsettling, a holy longing, a divine expectation for God's revealed nature. Ever since Adam, God knew he would wait 4,000 years till people really got to see him. Before I got married, they put me on a plane and shipped me over to Kuwait. It was nice of Uncle Sam, wasn't it? (laughs) 
went over to Kuwait for 60 days, all the while engaged to my bride, knowing the whole time that I'm coming to get married. You're talking about anxiety. You're talking about a holy unsettling. I had indignation. <laughs> Probably indigestion too. <laughs> I could not wait to get there. Could not wait to be unified. It had taken seven years. That's God and the cross. For 4,000 years he waits for his consummation. For 4,000 years he waits for his unification with flesh. Where he reconciles all people's sins to himself. So that you and I could have the knowledge of a righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness through faith. The whole gospel is that God did not act according to His anger. Yes, Psalm 711 says God has indignation every day, but He doesn't act on it. He's not like you and me. We're angry and we act. I don't like what you did. I don't like what you said about me. You offended me. That's what we do. But praise God, He's not like us. Amen? Praise God that He doesn't retaliate. Praise God that He doesn't take out His vengeance on us like we do. Next time you realize you're a great big sinner, just remember that God's not. And He doesn't act like you. You see, the indignation that he has is an outflow of his love that desires all creation to be unified in him. The indignation comes from his jealousy, similar to the jealousy that a father has who sees his child swimming and there comes a shark. Would you say that that's a jealous father? Would you say the father wants to share his son with a shark? No, that's a jealous dad. So what does the dad's jealousy drive him to do? It does not drive him to punish his son for swimming. It drives him to punish himself and sacrifice himself in the waters of that shark so his son is rescued. That's God's indignation. That he surrendered himself to the shark of death. And came out on the other side to tell us about it. See, Christianity is not how well you love God. It's about how well God loves you. Because honestly, we are terrible at loving God. Let's not be spiritual. We stink. <laughs> Can I tell you that God knows that? God knows that. He knows you're not as good a witness as you should be. But that's not what the gospel is about. It's about how good he loves. See, we don't have this holiness thing figured out. We don't have this spirituality thing figured out. I don't know if we ever will, but I do know that rather than knowing us, we need to know God. Rather than knowing how good I can be, I need to know how good God is. 
And the more I know how good God is, I will know that He's placed His nature in me. Until I focus on Him, in Him alone, I'll always be in the gospel of sin management. And that's no good news at all. That's no good news. See, as long as I think God is a legalist, I'm going to be a legalist. As long as I think God is going out there quoting the Ten Commandments to everybody, what am I going to do? I'm going to go hold sign of aborted babies up at Chick-fil-A. Yelling at people. You're going to hell! Then we'll take a break and get a chicken sandwich. As long as I think God is a God of justice and demands justice, I'm going to demand justice. Well, you didn't do me right, and I'm going to get justice. See, as long as I think that's who God is, I'm going to act that way. As long as I think that God, that, that failures separate us from God, what happens is when others fail, we'll separate from others. When others fail us, we'll say, Mm-mm-mm. I can't have that. can't have that. Let me tell you, you ain't going to have no friends. You're going to be a lonely Christian. A lonely, stuffy-nosed Christian. Nobody likes you know who Jesus hung around? The messed up people. The, the, the sick people. The smelly people that smelled like sin. And prostitution. And thieves. That's what we need to see God. As holiness crucified between two thieves. Who didn't deserve it? I'm so thankful that God is not like us. Can somebody be thankful that God is not like you? Amen? You see, the problem is, though, we want God to be like us. We want, when someone wrongs us, we want karma to kick in and the universe to render justice. And we love that. We love that. Just watch the news. It's about justice, not about God. So-and-so committed murder, and now he gets life in prison. And we say, yes! That's not the gospel. The gospel is that what you deserved, you didn't get. God did not give you what you deserve. And here's the thing, the media doesn't get that. The nature of God is that when you deserve death, He gave it to the one who didn't deserve it. Psalm 103.10, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. The gospel's in the Old Testament. Did you know the gospel's in the Old Testament? That's why I said the Old Testament does not reveal a different dispensation. Back in Israel, he was still not treating them as they deserved. Even when David and Bathsheba, he did not treat David as he deserved. It was still a picture of the gospel. Restoration. Reconciliation. Have you messed up bad? Guess what? David messed up bad. Have you messed up bad? Guess what? Noah messed up bad. Last thing, if we want to know God's nature, all we need to do is look at the cross. You see, ultimately, Adam did not know who God was. After Adam ate the fruit, what did Adam do? He heard God walking and he went and hid. God said, where are you, Adam? God knew where he was. Adam, you playing hide and go seek? What you doing, man? Adam says, I can't be around you. 
Not because God's nature changed, but here's the kicker. Adam's nature changed. What was God doing after they sinned? With full knowledge of their sin, He was coming to look for them. What are you doing, man? What are you doing? <laughs> you done messed up this time, didn't you? That's what mama says when you really... She ain't even going to whoop you. She's going to say, you done messed up this time. <laughs> but you see, Adam was hiding from God's discipline, but all along, God was never coming with discipline. <laughs> so why did God banish him from the garden? I've never got this. Go back and look at it. God says, I can't keep them here because if they eat from the tree of life, then they will be immortal in their condition. In his sin nature, if God would have allowed Adam's immortality, he would have been forever sinful. So God did not banish him because God was tired of him. God banished him to save him. God's nature was always salvation. God had always had a plan for mankind rescue so that he kept Adam from being eternally separated. And he cast him out of that potentiality so that he could be redeemed. And so what began was a 4,000 year chase of God running after man. Of God pursuing man. And for 4,000 years God was planning to reestablish who he was in the eyes of man. Because when man fled from the presence of God, God still pursued him. God didn't change. Who changed? We did. Sinfulness changed us. And in order to redeem the created image of man, now man had to learn about God. And to learn God's true nature, God's true identity. So, what we found was God wasn't looking to punish Adam, but the whole gospel was that God was waiting to redeem Adam, to save Adam. God's nature is that He is eternally a lover and not a fighter. This is what we're told in the second chapter of Philippians. That Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in likeness of man, and found in the appearance of man. And humbled himself to obedience on the death of the cross. And here's what happened, guys. Once Jesus died, then God elevated him and exalted him to the highest place. And Scripture says, gave him a name that is above every name. Do you know what? His name has always been the Son. His name has always been the Logos. The Son, eternally, the Son. But what changed is now our knowledge of His nature. So that, you know what, the name above every name is not Yahweh. When we talk about the secretive name of God, we talk about Yahweh who said, Moses, uh, uh, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am. And this name is so holy that the Jewish writers would not even transcribe it for fear that God would punish them. You see, that's a whole picture of how they did not understand God. 
But see, it's not Yahweh that's above every name. It's not Jehovah that's above every name. It's not Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rasa, Jehovah Jireh. None of those. It is the name of Jesus above every name. Because the God we see on Sinai is just a limited picture of who He really is, the God we see on Calvary. He never changed. Now we just see Him in fullness. Even though the nature of God was righteousness, in Christ He took off that nature. Even though the nature of God was glorious, He took off that glorious and and gave it to you. What's the nature of God to take off what He has? And give it to you. How many fathers, wicked fathers, seeing their child cold would take off their coat and give it to them? Let me tell you, friend, if the wicked father would do that for his child, how much more does God clothe you in his righteousness? This is why man must rightly divide the word of truth. And when preachers get caught up preaching the law of Moses... Thinking that the law is going to bring about righteousness when the gospel says that Jesus already brought about your righteousness. There's nothing you can do about it. Let me tell you something. You're not going to improve your righteousness. You're not going to follow the Bible good enough to become any more righteous than you are through Jesus Christ. And you know what? That messes with you. It messes with your psyche. Because you say, but I'm spiritual, pastor. But I read five chapters of Galatians, pastor. I prayed for an hour, pastor. Did you do it to earn God's favor? Or because you love Him? Check our motivation. We're either in a system of works or in a system of worship. Worship says, God, I'm not going to get any closer to you than I am. I'm just going to love you. I'm just going to love you. You see, what... The gospel writer John tells us is that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The true nature of God did not come from Sinai. It did not come from Deuteronomy. It did not come from Leviticus in all the laws of man trying to be right. And you know what you get for 4,000 years? Spiritual robots. Do not. Do not. <laughs> and literally you got these people who walking around in their religion do not eat dirt do not look bad and that's all it is robotic faith that's not love that's idolatry you know why? because the pagans were worshipping gods who would rebuke them And they didn't fall in line. And you know what Israel wanted? They wanted the same thing. So God gave it to them. You want to be holy enough to earn your righteousness? See how it works for you. It never worked. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The true nature of God does not come from Sinai or from the law. It comes from Christ. You see, the true nature of God is not that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The true nature is that God became Sodom and Gomorrah. God came into Sodom and Gomorrah and took the fire of His own wrath so that you would see who He really was. Wow, that's God. And preachers will get up and say... 
Just like God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, He's going to judge America. America is judged in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And He did not treat us according to what we deserve. (laughs) I'm telling you guys, the gospel is so unbelievable, we all have a hard time believing it. We really don't believe God is that good. We really don't believe God is that gracious. But He is. That's why it's called good news. Not mediocre news. Not shallow news. Good news. The reason that we have B.C. and A.D. is because Jesus, once He came and the fullness of God came in Christ, it split time in half. Before Christ, we didn't know His full nature, but A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, now we know the full nature of Jesus. Bless God, it changed everything. Now man knows Him. Here's my question. Do you know this God? Or do you know the God created in your own image who you think looks like you? I'm not saying you're worshiping a false idol. I'm saying God's sitting there and you're looking at some image that's not him. (laughs) I came home and my wife was looking at some other man's picture, oogling over it. I'd be like, honey, what are you doing? (laughs) That's not me. So God is trying to convey who he really is so that we'll see, wow, that's God. That's God. I pray that you'll know Him. And follow Him the rest of your life. Let's pray.